This yes. is hell. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell, and the end of the world we will be discussing today is brought to you by you, our listening audience, because today's topic and guest are based on your suggestions. You may remember me reading an email from Tynan in Columbia, Missouri. Tynan remembered us saying we would be open to recommendations about topics, not only specific guests, that This Is Hell should cover. Tynan had been following what he described as the rather breathless, euphoric news coverage of Exxon's board being shaken up by the so-called activist hedge fund Engine Number 1. Tynan's take was that, quote, the media consensus seems to be that this is a huge victory in the fight against climate change, but I would love to hear a more critical perspective, or at least an analysis that isn't so deeply credulous. Perhaps it's too soon for anyone to have written anything worthwhile about the Exxon example, but perhaps you could find a guest who's written about activist investors and whether they can actually force terrible companies to change. So we asked you, our listening audience, if you had any suggestions. While we were reading Tynan's email on air, and you can also email us your topic or guest suggestions to chuck at thisishell.com. Our guest for that day's show, Erica X. Eisen, who wrote the Boston Review article, The Other Nuremberg Trials, 75 years on. She was on hold, as our guest today is on hold right now, who also has an article at Boston Review. What I didn't realize is Erica is the person who wrote us almost a year ago, saying she had started listening to the show soon after moving to Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, and would listen to the show as she walked around exploring her new city. Erica explained that, as a result, the topography of Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan is stitched through in my memory with what I learned from your interviews, new thoughts, new ideas, new scholars to look into. Walking by this building or that park, snippets spring up in my memory. As a young writer and journalist, I have learned so much by listening to how you ask questions. I am particularly grateful for the This Is Hell coverage of the pandemic, which is the sharpest commentary on the subject anywhere, bar none. <clears throat> Thank you for those very kind words, Erica. Immediately following last Thursday's show, we got another email from Erica, who had heard Tynan suggest covering activist investors. Erica writes, before our interview, I heard you mention that you were looking for recommendations for people to talk to about how corporate investors are supposedly taking a stance on climate change. One person you might consider having on to talk about the topic is... Madison Condon, whose essay, Climate Change's New Ally, Big Finance, was published as part of Boston Review's recent Climate Action Essay series. Here's a good quote from the article. While we may celebrate the ability of institutional investors to combat climate change or hope that they might address other social ills, we should consider the desirability of a democratically unaccountable financial behemoth making centralized resource allocation decisions. This power to control and coordinate product supply across industries implies the market power to harm, to transfer wealth away from workers and consumers with anti-competitive behavior. All of which means because Tynan in Columbia, Missouri suggested the topic and Erica in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan suggested the guest. Today, we will be speaking with legal scholar Madison Condon, who wrote the Boston Review article, Climate Change's New Ally, Big Finance. Madison is an associate professor at Boston University School of Law, where she teaches environmental law and corporations. Madison's research focuses on climate change and its relationship to corporate governance, market risk, and financial regulators. The essay we will be discussing is adapted from the author's recent law review article, 
externalities and the common owner. Follow Madison on Twitter at Madison E. Condon. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, podcast host Chuck Mertz, producing for the first time in a few weeks, Richard Norwood. Richard, how have you been? Oh, good. Chuck, you're looking mighty cute in your summer do. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. I got another COVID haircut for my girlfriend, and it's very, very uh, sketchy yeah. at best. How are you feeling? Oh, looks good. Oh, yeah. So, like, uh, as you know, I'm in the midst, halfway through this uh, cataract surgery situation. So we had the first eye done last week, and uh, everything's a little weird because... Uh, uh, one eye's in focus and yeah. the other isn't. Well, well, yeah. I mean, it took. It was really funny. Like I wear glasses, so I took a lens out, mm-hmm. and it took like three or four days for my brain to kind of like rewire itself, so I could see with with my glasses on also. Um, but here's here's the crazy thing. I, I brought you. I know this is great radio. I brought you a little <laughs> show and tell. All right. Up up there by your clock. There's a little plastic. No, on, on the desk. Okay. All right. uh, there's a little piece oh, of yeah. plastic. Yes. Right. So I know you may not be able to see the color, but no, that hold that hold that up to your face. You can definitely see the saturation level. Yeah. Right? yeah. That is like the color of the cataract that they took out of my eye. Oh no, kidding. So. So like like that color is like an orangey yellow sepia tone. Uh-huh. So like everything I've been seeing has been like that um, saturated of a of a color. No kidding. Uh, is that crazy? That is really weird. Like, so one of your eyes is seeing this weird sepia tone right. all the time right yes. now, and, and the other side isn't. And the other side is like the whites are like crazy white, and the sky is like electric blue. Oh my god. <laughs> It's nuts. Uh, have you suggested tripping during this period in time, or are you all already tripping all the yeah, time? I don't need any drugs. <laughs> exactly. I was going to say. Uh, something happened last week, Richard, that I forgot to mention on yesterday's show. I was witness to a child being convert- converted to anarchism in an Illinois rest area men's room. On the way home Sunday, we stopped at what is called the Funks Grove Rest Area which may be the only rest area in the United States that has funk in the name, despite all rest areas in the United States definitely having a funk to them. Funk's Grove, in case you're wondering, is named for the Funk family, whose wealth came from syrup they tapped in what was once a densely forested area and is now basically farmland as far as the eye can see. And you know the Funk family would not be happy about the anarchist recruitment and training that was taking place in the men's room at a rest area named after the family. But that's exactly what is happening. Children are being taught anarchism, are accepting anarchism, and are likely becoming anarchists in Illinois rest area bathrooms. Let me explain. I heard an exchange between a father and his very young son. After washing their hands, the boy asked his father what the words were on the sign that was covering the hand dryer. The father explained to his son that the sign said, out of order. The boy asked, what out of order means and the father replied it means out of order and I'm starting to think and hope that he's new at this fathering game the boy then queried but what does order mean the father answered it means it's broken to which the boy concluded oh order means broken and just like that an anarchist was introduced to and accepted the precepts of anarchism in the Funks Grove rest area off I-55. But more importantly than any of that, Richard, 
What's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what's leaking out of your lab, Rodora? <laughs> nice. Yeah, I saw the picture that Alex posted with this. What's leaking out of your lab? Alex then posted a picture of a Labrador going to the bathroom. I'm pretty sure he means a laboratory, not a Labrador. What's leaking out of your lab? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can get the camping mug you can get the trucker cap you can get the winter beanie you can get the tote bag you can get the t-shirt you can get the this is hell introduction to the 21st century but the only way you can win that prize is if you leave your answer to this week's question at our facebook page or tweet it to us or email it to us but we have to have your answer by the end of thursday's show following jeff dorch in the moment of truth when we will be announcing this week's winner during this week's moment, Jeff takes us to inspect the foundation of the House of Bad Opinions. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from following our guest. Not only can you email us, tweet at us, message us via Facebook, you can also send us stuff to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And we got another guest suggestion from Rue in Glasgow. Rue writes, hi folks, have you heard of AF? Co. She's doing some really interesting writing on black veganism and essentially where thinking on race can be applied to animal rights. Specifically, she works outside of any specific movements to avoid restrictive pigeonholing. Reminds me of an old interview you had on the problem with intersectionality. And she even has a book that is in part a case study of the popular movie Get Out, which is a fantastic movie. I'd be really interested to hear how Chuck's style of interviewing helps to get the most out of her time on air. Cheers, Rue from Glasgow. So I did a quick search on APCO, that's A-P-H space K-O, and the first two items that popped up <laughs> were interviews. One with F titled Racism as Zoological Witchcraft, and another on speciesism as an extension of white supremacy, which are definitely intriguing titles for interviews and definitely not topics we've discussed on the show in the past. So yes, Rue, we will look a bit more into APCO because these are definitely not topics we've ever, ever discussed in the past. We also got a message via Facebook from a listener who is not getting vaccinated. We forwarded that message to epidemiologist Rob Wallace, who has appeared on our show several times during the pandemic. And we got a response from Rob. We will be sharing both the message from a listener who does not want to get vaccinated and Rob's response following our conversation with Madison. Remember, you can also email us, message us via Facebook or DM us or via, uh, you know, via Twitter with your suggestions or comments on our show. And if you do, we will not only read what you have to say on air, but we will likely pursue your topic or guest suggestion as we are doing with our guest today. Thanks again to Tynan for today's topic idea and Erica for suggesting today's guest, Madison Condon. Coming up, the good, the bad, and the ugly of investor activism and its reported fight against climate change. Richard will also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, What's leaking out of your lab? What's leaking out of your lab? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support to find out all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell in more ways than one. 
You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. Again, that's facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Tweet it to us at thisishellradio or email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. And again, we will also have a response from epidemiologist Rob Wallace, who is on our show to very accurately predict and analyze exactly what was happening with the pandemic since March of last year. Richard will also be telling us who is on tomorrow's show. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. There is, as listener Tynan wrote, a lot of breathless coverage of so-called investor activism and what its impact could be on the fight against climate change. With so many major corporations' management seemingly intransigent in their desire and business model of constantly burning more and more fossil fuel every year, that is until the pandemic slowed everything down, many who are concerned about climate change may have started feeling hopeless, racked with futility as nothing seemed to be able to stop the market from causing even more damage to the environment. Desperate to find any good news, climate change activists may have finally seen that glimmer of hope with investor activism. Or maybe there's a scary side of that kind of activism that's not being considered. Here to help us get a better understanding of what is happening with investor activism, legal scholar Madison Condon wrote the Boston Review article, Climate Change's New Ally, Big Finance. Welcome to This Is Hell, Madison. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. You can follow Madison on Twitter at Madison E. Condon. You start by writing that over the past two years, a striking change has taken place in the boardrooms of greenhouse gas producers. A growing number of large companies have announced commitments to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. Before we get into exactly how all this investor activity is taking place, Back on April Fool's Day of this year, we spoke with Ben Ehrenreich, who wrote the New Republic article, We're Hurtling Toward Global Suicide. Ben argues that net zero sounds good, but it's a far short of zero carbon emissions. So what is net zero and how big of a step or how small of a step is it in addressing carbon emissions that cause climate change? Yeah, so that's a good critique. Net zero means that whatever emissions the company is emitting, it it could either reduce them or the ones that it does emit, it either buys offsets um, to counteract, to sort of like do some accounting to, to net out its emissions. Usually that in the, that's in the form of, say there's a forest in Brazil that's about to be cut down. The, there can be, there is a market that can be established where you pay someone, you pay a landowner in Brazil not to cut down the forest. And the company, in exchange for the money it gives to this forest keeper gets the gets sort of the credits that would have been emitted had the forest been cut down. So that's one way net zero is achieved. And then the other way is through carbon sequestration or carbon capture, where oil companies in particular are claiming that part of how they'll achieve net zero goals is to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere and then store it back in the ground as a different way to sort of zero out their emissions. So how far does that go toward addressing climate change? Because that is not, because a lot of people think when they hear net zero, they think it means zero emissions. Yeah, it definitely doesn't mean zero emissions. And also some of the, one of the biggest problems is the claims that the oil and gas companies are making about what is technologically or physically achievable using these methods, either the forest offsets or the carbon capture, just at this moment are pretty unrealistic. And they also come, you know, they come on the heels of the industry actually having ignored a lot of this technology for a long time. So now Exxon, for example, is 
is un under its new leadership is wanting to be, you know, enter into sort of like a public private partnership for carbon sequestration that would be built in Texas, meaning it wants the government to help it pay for developing this technology, which, you know, it's been sort of willfully ignoring for the last 15 years. So public par private partnerships, as we know, so often the private part overpowers the public part. Should yes, we be the public part is just the public giving is just government money, really. <laughs> right. So this shouldn't be we shouldn't be too excited about Exxon's plan then. Right. No, I would be hesitant about the way that Exxon just decided to achieve net zero emissions, for sure. You write that the growing number of large companies promising net zero emissions by 2050 include the oil majors, BP, Shell, Total, the mining giant Rio Tinto, and the electricity supplier Southern Company. While such commitments are often described as voluntary, not mandated by government regulation, they were often adopted begrudgingly by executives and boards acquiescing to demands made by a coordinated group of their largest shareholders shareholders. How often are voluntary reforms by major corporations, more accurately, investor-imposed reforms upon corporate executives? Because the, the impression we get with the word voluntary is that it is a corporate goodwill and commitment to their neighbors and surrounding communities. So how often are these voluntary and how often are they more accurately investor-imposed reforms upon corporate executives? So I focus, this is what my scholarship is actually focused a lot on, is this growing, what I see as a growing conflict between the CEOs and managers of corporations and their, and their sort of large institutional shareholders. Um, and in the case of the oil and gas companies, it's definitely true that the managers and the CEOs are the ones that are sort of dragging their heels much more than what their investors are asking them to do in terms of diversifying away from just oil and gas and to become sort of broadly an energy company rather than a fossil company. And yeah, so I think many of the trend, many of the moves are completely investor driven rather than coming from coming from management or corporate boards. So does management not want to, in fact, go along with these voluntary goals like net zero emissions by 2050 because it hurts profits and management must pursue profits? That's what we heard in the past. The corporations could not cut emissions because it would go against what they must do as management, and that is pursue profit at any and all cost. You know, there's a lot of different ways to see it, and I think a lot of different things are happening at once. You know, you can see the board fight that went down as Exxon, and I do see it from a few angles. I think that in one, you know, you can, I think in one sense, some of the investors that voted against the Exxon board leadership were purely motivated by the bottom line in the sense that Exxon is a financial disaster. It's accumulated like a bunch of debt. Its strategy was to be sort of the last oil major standing as all the other oil majors have started over the past few years to jettison certain projects and cut back on capital spending. But Exxon did not do that. And um, that played out to be a disaster. It's been its stock price has been going down. It might have to cut dividends. Um, it got it got kicked out of the Dow Jones. Um, its rating was degraded by the ratings agencies. So in some sense. Not investing a bunch of capital into investigating and digging up fossils has just become a bad business move, let alone how you feel about climate change. There's the market is turning away from fossils. So when they do have these shareholder uprisings, like you mentioned, also happening at Con Ed, at uh, ConocoPhillips, when they do have these 
shareholder uprisings. Why does management not want to make those shareholder uprisings public, especially when those uprisings lead to corporations taking actions to doing things that could be promoted as positive, like cutting fossil fuel emissions? So why don't these firms want people to know about these shareholder uprisings? I think it has to do with sort of entrenched management and also biases of your worldview. You know, it's hard to convince, you know, I will say also they let Darren Woods, the CEO of Exxon, remain as Exxon. So you can be skeptical of just how intense this investor revolution really is. But it's hard to convince a Rex Tillerson, for example, or a Darren Woods that what they should be doing is something other than oil. They're oil men. So I think the way that they view themselves and their company actually has a lot to do with their resistance to shareholder pressure. And in some cases, it might actually, so in, so CEOs are paid, their, incent, their incentives are very much tied to their stock price. So if they think that something in the short term will depress the stock price, they are going to want to avoid taking that measure, even if it's perhaps in the long-term best interest of the company. They have sort of a shorter-term horizon than the large investors, which is one of the, one of the reasons for the conflict. You write that shareholder proposals in the United States are merely precatory. Even if they pass with majority support, a company is not legally required to do what investors want. Still, it is risky for companies to disregard proposals that gain significant shareholder support, even those that fail to reach a majority because shareholders also hold the power to appoint and remove corporate directors and vote against compensation packages of executives that haven't done their bidding. So if management is not required by law to listen to shareholders, but they do because shareholders vote on who is on the board, how voluntarily democratic are these large companies? Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. I know. I mean, (laughs) um, in the sense that so. So yeah, the, the real the real stick in the end is, you know, we can vote on these precatory, as you said, proposals, meaning they're just suggestions, but you sort of ignore your largest shareholders repeatedly at your peril, as was just shown with the Exxon fight. Uh, this was actually the third, I think, time that BlackRock has voted against Exxon board members explicitly for climate change reasons. Um, and BlackRock was joined by some of the largest other institutional investors in that decision. So as it was shown, you know, so Exxon was really dragging its heels on like a lot of things that investors were asking for. Uh, investors were asking for a lot more disclosures, for a lot more information about how Exxon was planning to handle the energy transition in a future where there's going to be less fossil demand. And Exxon was just not that forthcoming with that information. And finally, it really, really caught up to the board members because they no longer have their jobs. And I want to mention this just in case people have missed this in the past, uh, that, that hedge fund uh, uh, engine number one in Exxon a couple of weeks ago, when the hedge fund, which only owns uh, 0.02% of all Exxon shares, won two board seats with the vote on a third too close to call. Engine number one said in a statement following the vote, what the board needs are directors with experience in successful and profitable energy industry transformations who can help turn aspirations of addressing the risks of climate change into a long-term business plan not talking points. And so people in this news story and in many of the news stories that we find nowadays, they're trying to find the hero in the, in the moment. So are the real heroes not the long-term investors, not management, but hedge funds? Or are they, like engine number one, possibly pushed by investors 
and shareholders of their own? Who are, if there is a silver lining to this, who are the people who are pushing the positive aspect of uh, shareholder activism? That's an interesting question. Engine number one is an extremely unique type of hedge fund. Like we usually think of hedge funds as being sort of corporate raiders or going in and wrestling up the company from a profit-motivated perspective, which is perhaps what they're doing. But as you mentioned, engine number one owned like a very tiny, tiny share of Exxon. So the reason that that those board members won those seats is because engine number one um, targeted and persuaded the large institutional investors. So BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, the very large index funds that manage everyone's index and ETFs investments, they own almost 20, just those three investors I mentioned own almost 20% of Exxon together. And so engine number one needed to per- persuade those investors that it would be in the right decision to, to support the, the opposition board members. And they did so successfully. And that was really the key, the key turning point is... Um, how they won. Is the, is this kind of investor activism then only possible when it is a company like Exxon that is being weakened, that is in a troubled state? That's an interesting question. I mean, so what I write about, so I'm very interested in these large institutional investors, the, the Black Rocks and the Vanguards and the State Streets of the world, because they're truly enormous, you know, seven to eight trillion dollars. They're the size of, you know, they're in the, if they were countries, they'd be in the top 10 um, size of countries. So, and one thing that's interesting about them is they own basically the whole economy. They're very broadly diversified. They own a sizable chunk of every single public company, of every single public U.S. company. And so part of what is going on, I think, is that they see things such as climate change as a threat to their entire basket of investments rather than just a threat to Exxon in particular. So when they are thinking about how they're going to exercise their governance power, they're looking at their whole portfolio. And I think it's slow, it's occurred to them recently um, that climate change is really going to hurt their bottom line, you know, even in the, even in the nearer term, even in the next 10 years, which is definitely in these large investors investment horizons. If you look at you know the PG&E bankruptcy or the wildfires in the West or sea level rise, these are things that are going to be bad for the investment community. And they're, I think that's part of what is motivating these large investors is that externality, that cost that Exxon imposes on the rest of their companies um, and sort of scratching their head and being like, well, we own 20% of this of Exxon. Like, why are we going to let them why are we going to let them do this? Why are we going to let them hurt the rest of our profits? So to answer your question, I do think that this, this consolidation in the asset management industry, meaning just, just how large these investors are, and the fact that they're so broadly diversified, meaning they own the whole economy, they're not specifically focused on any one company. I think that that has a lot to do with this growing ESG movement or a lot of or the way the investors are starting to approach how they um, are stewards of their portfolios. And you're right that financial regulators around the world have begun requiring that companies disclose their climate risks in accordance with the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. But in the United States, it is not the Securities and Exchange Commission that is mandating a new disclosure standard. It's BlackRock. What does that say to you about the SEC and climate change when the private sector will hold climate change contributing firms to account but a U.S. government oversight agency will and does not. Right. Well, I think that that had a lot to do with the Trump administration, although it's true that um, 
the Obama administration also wasn't like particularly on the case, but the Biden administration is. So they are planning to release proposed mandatory climate risk disclosure rules by October. They're soliciting comments now. So I've been participating and giving feedback to the SEC on like what those disclosure rules should look like. Um, so the Biden administration is on it, finally. It helps their agenda that all the institutional investors also want it. Um, but it does say something very interesting that, you know, we think of we think of rules like that, mandatory disclosure rules, as coming from the government, as being posed top down. And I think it really just speaks to just how large and powerful BlackRock is that you know, when it speaks up and says it wants information from companies, um, mostly they listen. Your article, again, is entitled Climate Change's New Ally, Big Finance. And we're speaking with legal scholar Madison Condon. That article, as you pointed out, is from a recent law review sto- a study that you did called Externalities and the Common Owner. So when it comes to externalities, you you ask, what does all this have to do with climate change? If you own a significant slice of the global economy, you should be very concerned about climate change. Damages will likely amount to tens of trillions of dollars by the end of the century. Even if governments fully implement their commitments under the Paris Agreement, the world is nevertheless on track to warm between three and four degrees Celsius by 2100. So when you're considering those externalities, except especially externalities that are affected by climate change, why not just have all these funds just put all their money in cryptocurrencies? Isn't investing in cryptocurrencies outside of any external impact from climate change? Oh, no. Cryptocurrencies have an extremely large greenhouse gas footprint. I think I think this is a thing that people are surprised about. But, you know, if you buy a Tesla with Bitcoin, you've like completely zeroed out any positive greenhouse gas effect that you might have gotten from buying a Tesla. So the computing power that's required to mine Bitcoin requires, you know, rooms and rooms and large, large, large computers, which are enormous energy guzzlers. And all of those, much, much of that energy is coming from the grid, which is run on fossil fuels. So no, that would be a bad eco move to become a crypto investor. <laughs> and we were speaking with uh, that uh, about that with Kento Yoshi on our show back in early April. So if people wanted to hear more about the impact that cryptocurrencies do have on climate change, you can go back and listen to that interview. I just wanted to bring it up again because so often, whether it's this uh, shortage in microchips or whether it's our ongoing contributions to climate change, it just seems like that just is made completely invisible from that discussion. Yes. So you also write that at this level of war, Weather events become more frequent and more extreme, disrupting supply chains and destroying infrastructure. Workers become less productive. Sea levels rise to engulf whole cities. Agriculture is severely disrupted. Much more energy is required for cooling and electricity transmission becomes less efficient, to name just a handful of expected effects. That sounds like climate change will have a huge effect on what has supposedly been the driving force of economic growth over the last few decades, and that is globalization. How much will globalization be affected by climate change? And are investors protecting themselves from threats to globalization? That's an interesting question. I mean, so so part of what you mentioned, the sort of the, the chip shortage, because so there's been a drought in Taiwan that has really impacted the production of, of um, the chips that are used in cars, and it really slowed down the entire supply chain of car production in the U.S. There's been lots of stories about it, and you know, one of the stories that's been highlighted is just 
how, in, because we live in this hyper interconnected world where all the different pieces of your car comes from different places, your car production can really be impacted by a major hurricane that happens somewhere else in the world. And going forward with climate change, we can expect more frequent and more intense weather events that will disrupt places of production. And we are exposed to those simply because of just, just you're right, just how globalized we are and how much of our, the supply chains travel like round and round and round the globe in ways that will be physically disrupted. And you're right, yet within BlackRock's portfolio are many of the fossil fuel generating companies that are contributing to the crisis, even while they're pressuring other companies to get out of climate change contributing processes. Each year, just 100 publicly traded companies are responsible for two-thirds of all industrial em- emissions. So is, is BlackRock both a contributor to climate change and also standing up against climate change, depending on which of their investments they might be talking about? Yes, definitely. And even with even if they're talking about their, their one, you can even be talking about one investment product. You can just talk about like your basic S&P 500 index fund, which is a thing that many people own, many people's jobs, like that's where they dump your retirement money when you're when your employer makes a contribution to your retirement, they just put it in a basic index fund. And those index funds, they control all, you know, they control all your large publicly traded corporations. So you got Apple in there, you got Facebook, but then you also have Exxon and Chevron and the oil majors all and so, you know, you and I, I own Exxon simply because of this 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 is sort of default way that we've directed retirement savers to save for the future is to just dump it into the entire stock market. So I think a lot of people own Exxon that don't know that. I've asked students in my environmental law class, you know, are you an Exxon shareholder? No hands. Then I ask, like, did you work an office job where your job paid into retirement? A lot of hands. And, you know, it's almost certain that Exxon is in those retirement funds just based on how the default structures work. So, yes, BlackRock definitely is both is simultaneously profiting from the sale of um, oil and gas, but also, you know, BlackRock has really started to expand into residential and commercial real estate, and um, they invest in utilities, all of which are very exposed to the physical costs of climate change, sea level rise and increased weather events and fire. So that that's that's definitely part of what's going on in the background is is this sort of, I think actually Joseph Stiglitz called it internal schizophrenia, how one part of a bank could be really afraid of how its investments are going to be harmed by climate change and a a different part of the same bank can be lending to oil and gas companies willy-nilly. And maybe part of what's happening is that schizophrenia is being abated and, and companies are realizing just how much their own money-making activities are hurting their bottom line down the road. So how difficult is it for any investor to make it so they are not complicit in climate change by investing in companies that actually contribute to CO2 emissions? How is that an impossibility? You know, it's harder than it should be. And I think that that is a place that the Securities and Exchange Commission is also going to regulate. Meaning, so there's a there's a huge growing movement with ESG, environmental, social and governance um, investing. So and retail investors, just like random, mildly, you know, random rich people are 
especially interested in ESG products. And institutional investors are interested in ESG products. So all these things, there's been tons and tons of money, tons of money flowing into products that are labeled ESG investment products. But if you lift up the hood under some of these products and look in, they're not particularly ESG. And like the, the methodologies that are used to determine whether or not um, a given company qualifies as like, you know, a good environmental company. Their methodologies are all over the place. Um, Vanguard actually uh, offers a fossil free ETF that has oil and gas companies in it. That was that was recently reported in the Financial Times. So there's a lot of greenwashing going on for sure. So you could think you're trying to do the right thing by investing in an ESG fund. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that your money is going to be spent on greener projects. It's not necessarily gonna aid in the transition sort of away from fossils towards renewables. Um, so even if an ESG fund, even if it's not greenwashed in the sense that it doesn't have oil and gas companies in them, if all you do is exclude oil and gas companies, what you're gonna end up in your ESG fund is just all the major tech companies, you know, uh, Apple and Facebook. And it's not clear to me that those are like any more ESG than any other companies. Um, they just don't have a carbon footprint in the same way. So it's hard if you are trying to not, if you're trying to not profit from the fossil fuel companies. I mean, I will say that there is an argument, you know, there's this argument about whether divestment does anything or like is the correct move. Um, and so if you invest in an ESG fund that ex explicitly excludes oil and gas companies, that's sort of a form of exclusion, meaning you're, you're not giving any money to the oil and gas companies. There's an argument that, you know, look at BlackRock, like they wouldn't have been able to change the course of Exxon's business plan had they not remained as a holder of those shares. So had, had BlackRock divest, I mean, BlackRock wouldn't, but just say theoretically, had BlackRock divested and sold all its shares of Exxon because they said that Exxon was a bad actor and they were sick and tired of putting up with its stuff, then Exxon wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have that 6% ownership control. I mean, then BlackRock wouldn't have that 6% ownership control of Exxon with which to threaten Exxon with. It would just be out of the picture. So there is a, you know, a really interesting question happening right now is, you know, if you do divest, who just comes in and owns the shares after you, or or if you force, if you force an Exxon to sell off some of its oil and gas asset, assets, saying like, oh, you're not going to develop the Permian Basin because we've decided it doesn't, it's not conforming to a world of net zero under the Paris Agreement. You have there is growing attention to you know what happens if Exxon then sells that stake in the Permian Basin and it's just bought by someone in private equity who will develop it on their own. So it gets off of Exxon's balance sheet. You've like done the right ESG thing um, from the investor perspective, but it's not clear that it actually results in like total emissions going down from a world perspective if it just goes from one bad actor's hands into another, especially if it's private equity, which has far less oversight and disclosure. So this all comes back to this concept, which you outline in your writing from Milton Friedman and the Chicago School of Shareholder Primacy. Last summer, yeah. and you write that last summer, the business roundtable of top U.S. CEOs, including those of oil majors, airlines, car manufacturers and energy companies, released a much covered statement against shareholder primacy. Since 1997, the letter said the roundtable had issued corporate governance guidelines indicating that corporations exist principally to serve their shareholders. So 
what has caused the business roundtable to have a change of heart on shareholder primacy? And what, what does that say to you about the reasons they supported shareholder primacy in the past? If it's clearly not a value they actually hold, that they will ditch the idea given the circumstances, what was their support for shareholder primacy really about in the past? Yeah. So so that's interesting because, you know, so the business roundtable statement got very much covered and it was sort of covered as just another bit of corporate America going with the ESG flow, whether whether it was greenwashing or not, but just sort of part of the same trend of BlackRock pressuring companies on climate change. But I actually saw it as really one example, a very good example of this growing conflict between managers and shareholders. Um, and, you know, I write about this, but, you know, there's this concept of shareholder primacy in corporate governance literature um, really conflates two different ideas. So shareholder primacy is either the purpose of the corporation is to maximize the share price, but it could also be the purpose of the corporation or like what managers have to do is to do what shareholders want. And this new age, the last couple of years has shown that maybe maximizing the share price and doing what shareholders want can sometimes be in conflict. Maybe that's not what shareholders want. Um, and managers are paid, you know, paid with stock options. They are very much incentivized to, to manage the stock price. Like that's how we pay managers to manage companies. And so as they see this world changing and they see shareholders actually like opposing them, um, I think it's highlighting this rift in terms of like, well, what do, what do we think shareholder primacy means? Like what happens? What happens if the shareholders actually want the CEO of Exxon to do something different, to not maximize share price, simply because it will be harmful to the rest of their investments? So they want Exxon to stop stop emitting so that they can protect all you know their entire portfolio of investments. That's been unresolved, um, and I think requires like a lot more attention in the corporate governance world and corporate governance scholarship. This um, this conflict between CEOs and boards and and these new growing a massive institutional investors well how much of that conflict is because the ceos management their focus is on their stock price is on that short-term increase yes. in stock price and maybe the investors have a more long-term view even when it comes to their investment is that the disconnect that's part of it um i think a part of it is time horizon but i think part of it is also just breadth you know if you are if you are if you only own Exxon stock, I think you're going to you're going to manage the the priorities of Exxon different than if you own the stock of every single company including those that are harmed by Exxon. So I think part of it is that managers are especially invested in their own companies um and don't have this sort of broader economy-wide perspective and there's this and there's this time horizon mismatch meaning you know a CEO's tenure is you know 7 or 8 or maybe more years but you CEOs aren't necessarily incentivized to plan for the for the very long term. Um, and once their tenure is over, they get to cash out their stock options and they get to move on their way. And they might neglect planning for farther down the road based on how we pay and incentivize them now. So are you know, conversely, are those who in the past were critical, if not thoroughly opposed to shareholder primacy? possibly because they said it contributed to climate change, are they also changing their opinion on shareholder primacy? Interesting question. 
I will say that there's been some interesting bedfellows, right? Like, like the Sierra club, the Sierra club, like very much hailed the victory, um, or what happened at Exxon, the sort of like board showdown at Exxon as a victory for the climate. And I think this year, this year and, and, you know, organizations like the Sierra Club, there were certain things that the Trump administration did over the last four years. And the Trump administration was very much aligned, like in the political economy alignment way with managers and the CEO class. The Trump administration put forward a bunch of different rules that actually tried to weaken shareholder power and the institutional investor power. And the claim was sort of that, you know, Democrats can't get the climate action that they want through the ballot box and through the political process. So what they're doing actually is trying to get it through through capital, through institutional investors. And this is wrong because what they're doing, you know, what Larry Fink of BlackRock is doing is like wasting individual investors money. He's, you know, wasting all the retirement funds of normal Americans for his own like personal political climate agenda. That was the Trump administration's story. So in that battle, the Sierra Club and BlackRock are actually like pretty aligned versus versus the fights of, you know, versus the entrenchment of the CEOs and managers. I wouldn't go so far as to say that the Sierra Club thinks that BlackRock is doing like a great job. I think that many environmentalists, myself included, think that the institutional investors should be doing a lot more and should have acted a lot faster than they have been acting. You also point out that there is, of course, a darker side to this newly amassed power. The three largest U.S. asset managers hold an average stake of more than 20 percent of S&P 500 companies, as you were mentioning. And then you ask what happens when all competing firms within an industry share the same large shareholders. So what would be the impact on competition if all competing firms are all owned by the same shareholders? Yeah. So this is where my uh, research on corporate governance and climate change really intersects with um, a body of, of economics research on common ownership. So common ownership describes the phenomenon where a, a large institutional investor owns a sizable share of every single company in a large industry. So this there was like a groundbreaking paper that came out in I think 2014, which showed if you look at all the major um, players in the airline industry, they all have the same six or seven largest shareholders. They're all owned by BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, Fidelity. And as the shares of common ownership increase, you know, as, as they all start to be owned by the same people, same institutions, they compete less with one another. And that sort of makes sense, right? Like if you own Coke and you own Pepsi and you own them equally, you don't particularly care like which one of them does better than the other. You just want the soda industry to do, do really well. So you might, you might not incentivize the Coke manager to compete really aggressively with Pepsi. You might even encourage them to collaborate. So there's, that's, what this literature and the economics literature argues that because of this consolidation in the asset management industry, and because basically every company has the same five large shareholders, that there's been diminished competition in a bunch of different industries, the banking industry, the pharmaceutical industry, this is where these um, studies have come from. And that intersects, and of course, the institutional investors, they definitely don't want to be regulated for antitrust. So they their response is like, no, that's impossible. That's not the types of conversations that we have with management. Like we don't influence supply and pricing decisions. Like we would never tell an airline exactly what routes to fly or what, you know, whether to cut back on supply. That's just a little bit unpersuasive given 
how successful they've been in the climate change space, meaning they institutional investors work together to directly tell oil and gas companies, you know, you shouldn't develop this oil field. Like you should cut back on this level of emissions. Like this asset, we're like upset with your management of this asset. We think you shouldn't have bought it or we think you shouldn't have invest more capital into producing it. Um, that shows that they have the power to influence product supply and pricing. That's it's, it's sort of two sides of the same coin. And they're working together to do it. And they're, and they're pressuring all the same companies at once. So they're pressuring all the players in the oil and gas industry to simultaneously cut back on production. That's definitely good from a climate change perspective, but it does show that they have the power certainly to behave anti-competitively like in other arenas. So what is the impact of this anti-competitive behavior on workers because on Fox News, whenever there is talk of breaking up some huge corporation, they complain that the company is being punished for its success. So how can that success be bad for workers? Well, it all comes down to this concept that I think Joan Robinson first wrote about monopsony, meaning it's, you know, the flip side of monopoly, but in the labor market, meaning if you only have, if all the large companies are working together in, co in concert, facilitated by institutional investors, sort of like one big mega company. That is a lot of corporate power, like relative to the relatively unorganized, unconsolidated, uncoordinated labor power. So it really does, you know, if you're worried about market power effects and you're worried about, you know, it could, it, it could affect competition and product supply, it could affect consumer pricing, but it could definitely also affect wages and um, just how much workers are able to demand like from their employers. To what extent, because you, you quote a popular financial blogger, Matt Levine, uh, recently musing, will the index funds save us? So to what extent could the work of index funds mitigate the worst aspects of climate change? That's a very good question. You know, they definitely can't do it alone in any way. They definitely, we definitely need a lot of government intervention to supplement what they're doing. I will say that something interesting is going on in the sense that, you know, I've been paying a lot of attention to what John Kerry has been saying in this space. And I think there is some there's some acknowledgement, at least on John Kerry's part, that what's happening on Wall Street and what's happening with the institutional investors is desirable, like explicitly because of its non-democratic aspect, meaning like, look at how broken Congress is, like, look at our Supreme Court. Like, if you are extremely urgently believe in climate action, it's interesting that some of the biggest emissions redu reduction commitments are actually coming like from the corporate sector without, without command and control happening or even like appearing like ready to happen anytime soon from the government. So that's obviously not great if you love and believe in democracy. Um, but it is this, it's, I think it's part of the landscape is that like some of the institutional investors are just going ahead and doing it on their own, given that the government has been in like complete stasis on this issue. Just a couple more questions for you, Madison. Uh, you write that in uh, 2014, a trio of economists found that the key players in the U.S. airline industry compete less with one another as a result of being all partially owned by the same institutional investors, as you were mentioning. In this two-year period, the uh, same seven shareholders who control 50% of American airline stack also had large ownership shares in American's competitors. The common ownership was found to result in higher ticket prices. Since then, similar anti-competitive effects have been found in the banking, pharmaceutical seed, and even cereal industries, as you were mentioning, with this, will this mean 
even more corporate power, not just over the market, but politics as well. Is giving hedge funds and others the power to engage in shareholder activism a slippery slope to giving corporations more power over people? You know, it's interesting because one of the things that the institutional investors have been demanding the most, which I think actually has a lot of teeth to them, is disclosure and then cessation stoppage of certain lobbying practices. So especially in the oil and gas industry, institutional investors are trying to force um, corporations to get out of the American Petroleum Institute, to get out of the American Enterprise Institute, to stop giving money to trade associations that spend a lot of money on politicking and lobbying to prevent climate legislation. And, you know, I think that corporate lobbying is some of the biggest reasons. I think it's the reason why a carbon tax didn't pass in Washington state is I think it's directly because of corporate lobbying. And I think that this move for institutional investors of really trying to get companies to cut that out is a big deal and actually could event could result in, um, you know, some good things for the planet. That does mean just maybe it's sort of a transfer of one corporate power to another, you know, um, and the motivations of the institutional investors just happen to be more aligned with society. Um, but I think it's a rebalancing, it's suddenly a, a rebalancing or a shift of where corporate power is located. And you're right that the same market power that enables the jacking of airline tickets is key toward making emission reductions happen. Pressuring only one or two oil producers to slash supply is unlikely to have much of an effect on total emissions. Their competitors will step in to fill the supply gap. But Climate Action 100 Plus is targeting simultaneously all publicly owned producers and major consumers of fossil products, including auto manufacturers and construction companies. And the group is very coordinated in its efforts. Individual investor signatories of Climate Action 100 Plus are tasked with specific companies to pressure, so they share the costs of economy-wide engagement across their membership. So does the market view Climate Action 100 Plus, who is behind much of the shareholder activism against climate change, does the market view them as a threat to the market, or do they see them as a savior from climate change? Yeah, well, the market is a bunch of different things at once. So Climate Action 100 Plus started very much as a coalition of like European pension funds and sovereign wealth funds and asset managers, um, but has been growing in its ranks and recently was joined by some of the biggest U.S. asset managers, including BlackRock. So I think of Climate Action 100 Plus as definitely sort of like the coordinating center of a lot of this climate action, like a lot of the strategy originated with this group. And so I think the market, you know, I think depends on who you mean by the market. If you mean the CEOs of oil and gas companies, I think they hate Climate Action 100 plus and they don't want anything to do with them. Um, I think the Black Rocks of the world are very much a participant in Climate Action 100 plus and has been following the Climate Action 100 plus playbook. I think like because as we've discussed, they have decided that climate change matters to them as a, as a business move. So do asset management funds just need to be broken up? And to what extent have they already insulated themselves from being broken up with the power they already have? That's a good question. You know, and if you break them up, of course, you lose this ability they have to boss Exxon around. So that's that's this interesting, interesting balancing actor when you're thinking about what the effect they have over the economy is. Um, 
if you break up the Exxons and the vanguards and the state streets of the world, it's not clear that the like opposition board at Exxon would have won. And I do think that the opposition board at Exxon will actually re result in reduced emissions. I don't think it's about to turn Exxon into a solar company like anytime soon, but I think it will be slightly less bad than it was. Um, so it's a question of what makes the most sense. Um, and I don't think it's been, I don't have the greatest answer to what to do with the index funds. And I don't, I haven't really seen a proposal that I think has answered it adequately. Well, here's to uh, slightly less bad. That's a pretty, <laughs> that's something at least. So, so uh, the positive story of shareholder activism, is it a distraction then from the growing power of asset firms? I don't know if it's a distraction or even like a focusing. I think, I think that they're really showing just how much power they have through these climate, through these climate actions. Um, and I think it is opening up a discussion about like what other, you know, what that power could mean in other contexts. Um, yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure I know the answer to it. You also point you end by saying, as corporate governance scholars and activists fight against attempts to weaken institutional investor oversight of corporate managers, we should think harder about the question of who oversees the overseers. So in your opinion, who is overseeing the overseers? It's not clear right now. I mean, BlackRock and the Democratic Party, as it is right now, are like very deeply intertwined with one another. So Brian Deese, who is the head of, um, I guess, sustainable investing at BlackRock, that's what he did in between the Obama and the Biden administration. So he was under Obama, he was a climate guy, then he went to work for BlackRock for four years, now he's back, he's the head of the National Economic Council. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't know if I think it's great that they are so intimately connected, The you know, especially given that I think one of the things the Biden administration is going to have to tackle in addition to dealing with climate as a financial risk is like what to do about the size of these asset managers. And I'm not sure that they are totally poised to do that, given that Brian Deese is the head of head of the NEC where he is now. So can the market insulate itself from climate change or even pandemics? Is, is all this to a certain extent futile? Well, it definitely can't insulate itself from the changes. I mean, that it can't. That's one of the things about climate change, right? You can't diversify away climate change. It's going to affect the economy at the scale of GDP, basically. Um, it can help to mitigate. I mean, in some ways, some of the you know, in some ways, the boat has left the station, train has left the station, whatever. And I mean, we're we're very late in terms of actually trying to use industrial processes to induce emissions. But I think that's where we are going. I mean, I think another announcement just happened recently, Legal General um, Investment Management. It's one of the largest UK asset managers. They just, they just announced a round of divestment. So they're no longer investing in AIG, for example, because AIG, this major insurer, um, wouldn't stop insuring coal companies. And so um, Legal General was finally like, okay, we're divesting from you. We've given you a bunch of warnings. We're, we're, we're not gonna give you any more money. So. I think that those are real steps, actually, that can actually result in emissions reductions. And I think they're serious. I think it's more than greenwashing, um, but it's very little on, you know, it's it's incremental initial baby steps for what is actually like an enormous project. 
We've got one last question for you. We've been speaking with legal scholar Madison Condon, who wrote the Boston Review article, Climate Change's New Ally, Big Finance. And we want to thank listeners Tynan and Erica for their help in on this topic, as well as the guest suggestion. This essay has been adopted from the author's recent law review article, Externalities and the Common Owner. You can follow Madison on Twitter at Madison E. Condon, that's C-O-N-D-O-N. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, I promise, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write the rapid growth of asset managers has been likened to the power wielded by trust in the Gilded Age. U.S. Supreme Court Justice William Douglas, in a 1948 dissent from the court's decision to allow a steel industry merger, argued that the case was at heart about how much power steel executives should be permitted to wield, rather than the immediate economic impacts of the merger. The power to control the economy, he argued, quote, can be benign or it can be dangerous, dangerous, but it will develop into a government in itself and should be in the hands of elected representatives of the people, not in the hands of an industrial oligarchy. What happens when that kind of economic power becomes a government unto itself? What kind of government would we have? After all, if it responds to shareholder demands and we're all shareholders, how bad can a shareholder economy and government really be? Right. Well, that's the really important part of the whole story, right, is that we're not all shareholders. If we were, it wouldn't be such a bad method, maybe. We could all vote. We could all tell the asset manager like how we wanted our shares to be voted, the asset manager would you know, internalize externalities automatically. They would try to sort of manage the portfolio for the benefit of all. But when actually this distribution of shares are pretty tilted towards you know, the richest, for sure, uh, you know, the bottom half of America doesn't own any shares at all, really, then it starts to really become a problem where if, if you, you know, people talk a lot about shareholder democracy and it's, it's a little bit like that, you know, people vote, <laughs> there are elections, But the people who are able to vote the shares, and it's definitely not one vote, one person. It's, you know, you get a lot of votes if you have a lot of money. Um, It's not a great direction I see us going in. And I I think we're kind of already there. I mean, just look, you know, I started out as a climate person uh, 15 years ago, and now I know like a lot about the asset manager industry. I think that says a lot about our moment, you know, that I switched from learning about the Clean Air Act to learning about ESG investing in part because that was where the emissions reductions were coming from. Um, I don't think that's a great story about this moment. I hate to distract from that uh, question, but so isn't the solution then just making all these huge corporations, all of business worker owned? Well, that's interesting. I mean, so think about it, though. It's not clear that Exxon workers would also vote for their company to not exist anymore. You know, so in terms of like who is most aligned with the interests of society. Um, It's not, you know, I think most workers in the oil and gas industry like don't really want their industry to go away anytime soon. So it's it's not clear to me that just putting workers on boards would solve the problem. Um, You know, there are other proposals for sort of like a citizen's wealth fund or a sovereign wealth fund where, you know, if we could envision a world in which shares were more broadly dispersed, maybe that would be the solution. you know, I don't know the pathway towards that world. 
Madison, I cannot thank you enough for this conversation today. This is a topic that we would not have considered unless Tynan brought it up, and we would not have had you on the show if Erica had not suggested you as a guest. And I'm so glad that they did. This is why we love our listening audience, because they turn us on to uh, work like yours. So thank you so much for being on. Legal scholar Madison Condon wrote the Boston Review article, Climate Change's New Ally, Big Finance. You can follow Madison on Twitter at Madison E. Condon. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Tynan and Erica. Thank you very much. This is not the media. This is hell. And if you like what you just heard, please support Completely Listener Supported This Is Hell by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast, which features a brand new monologue by me and a classic archived interview that is unavailable anywhere else online at patreon.com slash this is hell. Richard, Please remind our listeners, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, what's leaking out of your lab? And... Oh. Is it getting hot back there in the uh, producer's no. booth? No, it's it's quite fine. Right. I just lost my place on the... I know, because I saw the door was open over there. I was thinking, hmm. Uh, Aaron D., Answers, virtual reality. (laughs) That's what's leaking out of your lab, virtual reality? Okay. Sean M. Answers, (laughs) self-worth. Adam A. Answers, a mic to grab. Right. And uh, Victor C. Answers, the joy of living. (laughs) That is leaking out of your lab in my home. Ladio answers, hermetically sealed, individually wrapped, night terrors. <laughs> I think they come like craft uh, singles. <laughs> What's leaking out of your lab? David Z answers, nothing G. Gordon Liddy couldn't fix. <laughs> I, he's dead. <laughs> he's not going to fix anything. <laughs> Tao L answers, tinfoil and crayons. <laughs> Neil C. answers, the thrill of just giving up. Lisa F. answers, lab approved. (laughs) Okay. And here's another one for you. Josh W. answers, wiki. (laughs) That's what's licking out of his lab is wiki. Wow. Did we do Jeffrey already? Uh, I don't think so. What is it? So what's leaking out of your lab? Our Jeffrey answers, bulletproof coffee. Kumbacha beer, turmeric camel's milk, pumpkin spice lattes, and all the other garbage beverages that no one ever asked for. (laughs) Hey, man. Kombucha's not so bad. What's leaking out of your lab? Stephen D. answers, salty discharge. (laughs) And uh, let's see. I think that one was answered already. John T. answers, Newfoundland English. <laughs> Newfoundland English. That's nice. Tomorrow. Greg M. answers a variant of chili con carne. <laughs> Gross. David S. answers 
roundworms, tapeworms, hookworms, oh my. No. I mean, whipworms and heartworms, oh my. Wow. Oh, I thought you meant my research lab. <laughs> That's disgusting. Is that it? That is it. The prisoner with our favorite answer to this week's question mail wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now and all the ways you can support This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us, but we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorch in the moment of truth, during this week's moment, Jeff takes us to inspect the foundation of the house of bad opinions. We will have even more of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's Thursday's show. As I was saying earlier, we got a message via Facebook from a listener who writes, Chuck, please do not worry so much about unvaccinated people during the pandemic. After the last two years, which felt like four years, I think it's safe to assume that everyone you meet outside contracted the virus already, which in turn means their immune system adapted to the point that they are literally protected by the infection as if they had a vaccination. Here's a paper on that. The listener then cites a Nature article which states many people who have been infected with SARS-CoV-2 will probably make antibodies against the virus for most of their lives. So suggest researchers who have identified long-lived antibody-producing cells in the bone marrow of people who have recovered from COVID-19. The listener continues, I've decided to refuse taking the vaccine for myself, and I'll keep pushing that anti-capitalist pro-vaccination button until this effing waiver on patent rights goes through so we can start to, you know, actually fight the virus together. Anyhow, give them hell. So I copied the content of that email, but no personal information, and forwarded it to epidemiologist Rob Wallace, who has been spot on in his analysis of the pandemic from day one. Rob writes in response to the listener, Hi Chuck, I have three replies. One, I ask that you do not make me or my position on pandemic response a foil by which to decide whether or not to have your 25th anniversary This Is Hell party. A friend corralled me early in the pandemic to act as personal epidemiologist, and it did not turn out well. Two, your friend here has conflated two topics. First is the matter of strong immune reaction in the paper the nature commentary reviewed i wrote a long piece on it but long story short a strong reaction to one strain does not necessarily offer protection to the new variants now cycling especially the delta variant which is rapidly being transmitted incredibly quickly throughout the south and it's just an essential position essentialist position as it is not everyone produces such a reaction there's also a matter of the fallacy of silent evidence many of those people who died from covid didn't produce that strong long-term immunity. Does that mean we've had a selection event and all those people are removed? Not necessarily. There are still many millions out there who are likely unexposed, who and where and when we have no idea. In other words, if we if uh, in other words, even if they don't die, we don't know who would and wouldn't produce such a reaction. For the most part, yes, most of us will for the variants that have circulated so far. Three, what your friend conflates here is the duration of an immune reaction and its coverage, say, versus a vaccination. As Columbia University professor of virology Vincent Rasaneo described here last month, it's unclear whether a natural infection would offer what a vaccination does. He then quotes the professor saying, so on the one hand, yes, you make a lot of viral proteins and those are great 
epitopes for mainly T cells because I think most of the antibodies that are going to block infection are going to be spike directed. But any other viral protein could in theory be a T cell target so you'll get more epitopes. Rob then continues the counter views that the virus may encode immune antagonists that could alter the immune response in some ways that that's not as good as, say, a vaccine. So it really depends, and we don't know enough yet. So I think if people are making a blanket statement that natural infection is always better, that's not always correct. It really depends on the virus. On the other hand, uh, you know, Rossineo is bullish on T-cell protection across vaccines, at least for the next couple of years. The only advice I'll give here, Chuck, Rob writes, if this has anything to do with your 25th anniversary party, is to have it outside. I should clarify that when I asked not to be a foil, it was along the lines that I do not wish to act as some kind of authority by which to approve of or block your party. Well, damn it, Rob, how can I shirk responsibility and pass it on to somebody else if I make the wrong decision on having the party or not. So I guess for me, this is hell. Richard, who is on tomorrow's Thursday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time, right here at thisishell.com. On Thursday, we have sociologist Caitlin Schroering on her article, Inside the Struggle for Water Sovereignty in Brazil for Roar Magazine. And, of course, Jeffy. Yes. Which I'm looking forward to. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Thank you so much for producing, Richard. It's great to see you again. I'm glad that one of your eyes can see me. Thanks to legal scholar Madison Condon, who wrote the Boston Review article, Climate Change's New Ally Big Finance. You can follow Madison on Twitter at Madison E. Condon. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996... This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.